0: Death will come to us all, this is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Siltrim, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask.
1: Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family
0: know where they can find us too. So today I'm welcoming Dr. Rachel Menzies, who is an Australian clinical psychologist, who received an award for her doctoral thesis researching death anxiety, its role in mental illness and its treatment. She is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Sydney. And Rachel has written four books and the latest titled Free Yourself from Death Anxiety, a CBT self-help guide for a fear of death and dying. So welcome, Rachel, and thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So first up, I'm really interested in what death anxiety is. So can you explain that for me?
1: Sure. So death anxiety is a bit of an umbrella term referring to people's fear or dread or even sadness, any sort of negative, unpleasant emotions that come up when people think about death or dying. So it could be fears around their own death, fears of not existing, fears around the dying process might be painful. Or for some people, their fear might focus on other people's death, so how they'll cope when a loved one dies, for instance. So death anxiety can look quite different in different people, and different people can fear various aspects of death or dying.
0: What sparked your interest in this topic?
1: It was something that I've been interested in, I think, since I was quite young. I think I was always interested in death, particularly it being a taboo and something that a lot of people don't seem to want to talk about. And then when I went to the University of Sydney to start my undergraduate studies, I was doing a double degree in ancient history and in psychology. And so in ancient history, I was learning a lot about different rituals and and funerary practices, you know, in ancient Greece and Rome and Egypt, different approaches to death from a historical perspective. And then in psychology, of course, I was learning a lot about anxiety, anxiety disorders and my father, who's also a clinical psychologist, he and I were talking a lot about how death really seemed to be at the root of a lot of these different mental health conditions. And so for me personally, it was really that dovetailing of my interests in, in history and people then combining with this interest in clinical psychology.
0: What have you found in your research and through your work as a psychologist? What have you found are the main causes for people experiencing death anxiety?
1: So there are various different things which can contribute to people's death anxiety. Things like early life experiences, so hearing or learning about the death of you know family members or loved ones growing up, particularly if the death was unexpected or not necessarily handled well by other people by other family members, we know that when death is explained to young people in a really matter-of-fact objective way that children tend to actually cope a lot better with death when they're given really clear factual explanations for death. And we often assume that kids don't really get death, that this is something you sort of grow to learn about as you get older. But actually by the age of 10, children have a really solid understanding of death. They know that death is inevitable. They know that it applies to all living things. And so then from the age of 10 on, the rest of their life is really devoted in many different ways to trying to grapple with this fear, whether that's through trying to leave a legacy, trying to have children themselves to live on through the next generation trying to become a person of significance so that you feel you'll be remembered fondly. These are all of the different, often unconscious ways that people deal with this fear of death. And of course, sometimes these work. And so if if someone is listening to this thinking that they're quite comfortable with death, it's probably because they've been engaging in all of these strategies to deal with it. But sometimes these don't work. And that's when we often see people presenting to treatment because these fears of death have actually started to take a real toll on their day-to-day life.
0: It's interesting that you talk about children having a, a much more realistic sense of death, children who tend to also be much more present moment oriented. As they grow into adulthood, how much do you think cultural, social conditioning influences how that view of death shifts and changes as life progresses as we age.
1: It's it's a really good question so culture plays a, a massive role in how we view death a lot of cultures around the world death is really integrated with life it's seen as the you know it's seen as a natural part of life it's festivals like the day of the dead festival in mexico but there are many festivals like that around the world where death is actually celebrated people are really encouraged to maintain continuing bonds with their ancestors whereas in a lot of western cultures this is not done it's almost pathologized if you try and maintain that connection with your dead and so culture plays a really big role and Interestingly, aging also is a really strong predictor of people's fears of death. Interestingly, the closer people get to death, so as they reach the older adult years, the less fearful of death they get, which people usually find a bit counterintuitive. You would think that if you know death is almost imminent that you should be quite fearful, but actually that's the group who tend to have the lowest fears of death and a lot more acceptance. So there are various different aspects of our environment and of ourselves that predict how comfortable we will be with death.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? So Mm. you talk in your book about death, anxiety and mental illness. Do you think like is one the catalyst for the other? Is death anxiety a catalyst for mental illness or is mental illness a catalyst for death anxiety or is it just the cause and effect much more complicated than that?
1: It's a really good question. So that's in one way been the main focus of my research. So my research has focused on mental health conditions and looking at how fears of death might be at the root and driving a lot of those mental health conditions. And so to try and test in the laboratory whether death anxiety might be causing some of these conditions, we use this experimental design where essentially half of the people are given a reminder of death. And the other half aren't. And it'll be a really subtle reminder of death where in a packet of a hundred questions, two of the questions ask them to think about death. And then the other half don't get any reminder like that. And then we measure their behavior. So the idea is that if fears of death are really driving a behavior, then we should expect when people are made to think about death, they do more of that behavior. And so what my research has shown is that reminders of death make people do more of their anxious behaviors that really characterize mental health conditions so for example if someone with ocd if their usual behavior is compulsively washing their hands and you know that's their way of coping with fears of germs and illness When you give people with OCD these subtle reminders of death, they spend twice as long washing their hands. When you give people with other conditions like health anxiety a reminder of death, they spend a lot more time checking their body for symptoms. They're much more interested in seeing their GP in the next few weeks. So all of these sorts of experiments suggest that fears of death are actually contributing to or driving the mental health conditions rather than it being the other way around.
0: So, how does death anxiety? I mean, obviously, this is going to be generalized. We can't probably be too specific, but how does it manifest for people, whether that's as an internal manifestation or external behavior? I mean, you just spoke about, for example, you know, OCD behaviors, but how else does it manifest?
1: So, it can manifest in a bunch of different ways. So, for some people with phobias, for instance, if people are scared of fears of the if they have a fear of heights or fears of spiders, fears of driving, fears of flying, all of these of course are things which can directly kill you. But it can be in much more subtle ways in Agoraphobia, for example, where people won't want to leave their house. We saw it a lot with COVID, you know, moving away from mental illness specifically. uh, In COVID, we saw high rates of death anxiety, a lot of people going to quite significant efforts to try and keep themselves healthy and safe, even if these were efforts that, you know, don't actually have any scientific backing, taking vitamin supplements or trying alternative remedies and that sort of thing. And then other people, of course, went a completely different way and went into denial, pretending that the virus didn't exist because that's their way of dealing with the fear of death is just to pretend that it's not even on the table. So there are almost infinite numbers of ways that this fear can manifest for people.
0: We are a very life-sustaining society, aren't we? We spend a, a lot of time, as you say, looking after our health, taking vitamins, doing exercise, cosmetic surgery to try and reduce the aging process. How do you think, I guess I'm sort of thinking about even advertising creates this fear of these things happening if we don't participate in these sorts of activities. So how much of an impact does that actually have on death anxiety in general terms?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think a lot of the the fear around aging plays a, you know, is, is strongly related to to fears of death that we don't view aging and death as something natural and ev- and inevitable. We view it as something that we should be fighting, whether that's through vitamins, whether that's through cosmetic surgery, skincare products, any of that. It's all really based on the fact that death and aging is something people fear and something that as a society we're not very good at at normalizing there's in One of my books, uh, Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, we have a chapter on exactly that, the idea of refusing to let go people who will spend hours on a treadmill each week to try and bolster their heart, to reduce the chance of some kind of cardiac event, the billion-dollar vitamin industry, which, again, is based on the idea that if you take enough of this supplement or that supplement, you're going to live for a very long time, (laughs) so they're they're not shying away from what they're claiming. And of course, there is just no scientific evidence that that's true, that 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 will do anything to extend your life. You'll spend a lot of money, but there's no guarantee it will actually do anything. So there are whole industries based on this fear.
0: And even that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost saying that part of our economic system is supported by this fear of death, this fear of aging, the fear of death coming. I mean, it's
1: problematic, really, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it is really problematic. And it's really interesting from a, a psychological point of view. We know from those sort of study designs I mentioned earlier, which are called mortality salient studies, where you give these subtle reminders of death. We know that one way people try and cope with the fear of death is through buying things, <laughs> through owning nice things, because again, it gives us this feeling that if I if I do what my culture tells me to do, then I've lived a good life and I'll be remembered. And so if my culture tells me that owning expensive cars or designer handbags or living in the nicest house on the nicest street, if my culture tells me that's what's important, then one way of coping with the fear of death is through trying to do all of that stuff. And so we know that when you give people these subtle reminders of death, they're much more interested in buying things, in spending money, particularly if it's spending money on high status luxury products. And you know this, again, has really big implications for consumerism. Someone mentioned to me recently that at Costco, they were selling coffins at the front of the store. And I don't know if Costco are aware of this research and if that's their way of trying to make people think of death before they enter the store and get them spending. But you can see the real day-to-day implications of all of this research. Mm.
0: So you mentioned a moment ago that you wrote this book on how the fear of death has shaped society. So Mm. what did you discover as you did your research for that book? Are there specific and consistent things? And is there a difference between subtle influences versus Costco's obvious influence?
1: In terms of that second question, it's really interesting. Even really subtle reminders seem to get people thinking of death and shape their behavior. So something as subtle as a crucifix hanging on a wall seems to be enough to prime death and have people thinking about death and then influence their behavior. So it doesn't have to be obvious. There are very obvious reminders of death. We've seen that with COVID, for example, where every day there was a death toll on the news, particularly early in the pandemic, when we were seeing photos of body bags lining the street, that all of these are very obvious reminders of death. And so it's not surprising then that we saw people do what they do in the lab, which is Bunker down in their beliefs, become aggressive to people of different cultural worldviews, of different ethnicities. These are all of the things that we know are ways of dealing with death anxiety by feeling like my culture is right, my view of the world is correct, and other people's are wrong, because culture is the thing that gives us a sense of immortality. We become part of something bigger than ourselves. So, those kind of more obvious reminders of death, of course, also impact people's behavior. And in the book, really, we're taking a very broad look at all of the different ways these fears shape, have shaped human history. You know, some of these ways have been grand and fantastic, things like the building of the pyramids, for instance, the Sistine Chapel, the desire to create something enduring. That's quite a – we will benefit from those, those attempts. But some of these have been really catastrophic, the overpopulation crisis, the destruction of the planet, conflicts on a global scale. All of these things we talk about their connection to fears of death and how actually this fear causes quite a lot of damage on a global scale.
0: And what about when the world was much smaller? I imagine the idea of death was a much more of a, a very direct community Influenced response. But now, because the world has become so big, we can look on our internet and see absolutely every corner of the world and every culture. Do you think that has contributed to our sense of death anxiety because we're getting much more information, greater comparison? It's not just about me and my family and my community anymore.
1: It's a good question. It's hard to say. I think, on the one hand, Like you said, people have a lot more access to even things like natural disasters around the world, tragedies around the world, that in some ways, it I suppose, has made death more accessible to people that I can look up right now how many people have died in a a landslide or, or floods in other parts of the world. On the other hand, I think a few hundred years ago, death was much more personally accessible to people where people would... You know, frequently lose loved ones. Mothers would frequently die in childbirth or lose children. And it was up to the individual to care for their dying, to care for their dead, to bathe the dead, prepare the dead for burial. So I think you know, there are obviously some benefits to having all of that information at our fingertips like we do now, but we've also lost a lot of that experience and practice with dealing with death on a much more intimate personal level where now the dying uh, left to die in in hospitals or in nursing homes and we don't have that real close connection to death in the way that we did for the vast majority of human history
0: so what sort of psychosocial interventions then are used to address death anxiety? And and are they actually effective for people?
1: What we know is that the most effective treatment for these kinds of fears is based on CBT, which is cognitive behavior therapy. And what seems to be most effective is what we call exposure therapy. So in general, when humans are anxious about something, we tend to avoid it. We tend to want to look away from it. And what we've known for decades is this is the worst thing you can do for anxiety. But the best way to overcome any anxiety is to face the fear. So if someone had a fear of dogs, for instance, you would want them looking at pictures of dogs, going to parks where there will be dogs, going to people's houses where there will be dogs. And this is the quickest way to overcome that kind of fear. And interestingly, the same thing holds for death. This is something that we've learned in the last few years, that Exposing yourself to reminders of death, whether that's through films, documentaries, going to places associated with death, like cemeteries or hospitals, doing the sorts of things you would usually avoid is the most effective way to start to overcome this fear and start to cultivate acceptance of death. And so this has come out in the research in the last five or so years, but this is something that a lot of people have known for thousands of years the uh, Stoic philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome talked about this a lot, that to overcome fears of death, you need to study it always to use Seneca's words. This idea of memento mori, of reminding yourself that you will die. This has been a a practice, and the Buddhists, of course, do a a lot of this. Uh, The (laughs) the corpse meditations. Yeah, that's right. The, The idea of constantly reflecting on On death uh, as the best way to accept it. So this has been sort of known in various traditions for thousands of years. But in modern psychology, it's only really been in the last five or so years that we've had quite strong evidence from rigorous randomized controlled trials that this is the way to start to address these fears.
0: So is death anxiety regarded as a phobia?
1: So it's not, you you could think of it as a phobia. It's sort of not in uh, any of the the diagnostic manuals or the textbooks that psychologists use to diagnose things, things like the Diagnostic uh, Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, mm. it's not technically considered its own thing, but you can think of it almost as a construct that plays a role in different mental health conditions, sort of like something like perfectionism or low self-esteem in that it's, that's not a disorder in and of itself, but it's an issue that is going to play a role in various different mental health conditions.
0: So what sort of percentage of the general population do you think would experience death anxiety to the degree that you would say that it has an effect on somebody's mental health?
1: So it's a really tricky question to answer. If you think about, I mean, one in, I think the latest numbers are one in five Australians will experience an anxiety disorder in their life. And we now know that the majority of anxiety disorders have some relationship with fears of death. So it seems like it's a pretty high number. So you know, a lot of people, again, have these sorts of fears, but it's either not impacting them or they've learned to deal with it in effective ways. It's impossible to put a number on it, but a Hmm. fair amount of people presenting to treatment with anxiety, there is usually some kind of role of, of fears of death, whether that's through concerns about health, concerns about safety or danger. And of course, it's not just linked to anxiety. It's the sort of thing we see often in depression as well, where people will feel like there's no point to anything that they do if it's all going to end one day, that there's no meaning in life if they know that death is inevitable. So it's, it's really hard to put a number on it, but it certainly comes up in many cases of people seeking mental health treatment. In
0: terms of the the treatment, when somebody comes to you, and it may not be that they've recognised that you know the fear of death is part of their their issue or part of their you know their mental illness or their behaviour, how do you help them to recognise that fear of death? Like somebody, for example, who might be agrophobic. Hmm. No, it may not be in their conscious awareness that, in fact, a fear of death or fear of harm is part of that how do you Mm. go about helping somebody to recognize that they are experiencing death anxiety
1: so usually with a few you know with a, a line of questioning people will put two and two together themselves so usually if you start to ask people what is it that you worry will happen to you if you leave the house for instance you know and okay you worry you would collapse and what would be so bad about that what would that mean usually with just a few questions it starts to come up mm-hmm. it doesn't always and so sometimes people might might really feel that death is not relevant to them or the fear is not relevant to them and you know in some cases It's not. It's not to to say that every person who is anxious or seeking treatment, that this is at the core of it. But usually with just a couple of questions, if you start to just scratch the surface, people will start to talk about their fears. And often they'll have other examples as well. So often they might then start to talk about how when they were a child for instance they were terrified that every time mom left the house something bad was going to happen to her for example or that they were scared of you know monsters under the bed because they were worried of course the monsters would attack them or something like that so usually people will also be able to bring to mind other experiences that might be linked to the same thing even though they might not have made that connection initially their current fear of leaving the house seems to be a completely different fear from the fear of mum not being with them, but there's still that same link of fearing harm and danger and death.
0: And it's still, I mean, what you're describing is still death anxiety comes out of a very negative uh, view of death, isn't it? It's a very optimistic mm. view of death rather than seeing death as a natural part of life.
1: Yeah, that's right. So viewing death as Something that, yeah, that's, that's, you've put it really well. Just viewing death as something that's unnatural or awful or something that they couldn't cope with, something that should be fought and avoided rather than viewing death as a natural part of life to be accepted.
0: So, how does it affect? the grief process then, when somebody mm. who is experiencing death anxiety in relation to themselves and then experiences the death of, of a loved one, or can be a loss of any description, I guess, but how does that anxiety then impact on their ability to grieve?
1: We know from the research that people who have higher levels of death anxiety tend to be more likely to experience complicated grief or prolonged grief. So grieving that would we would say is longer or more impactful than, if we can call it that, than a typical person's grief. So it seems to be that in general, my views about death are going to shape the way I deal with the death of a loved one. And so this is where I think this work is so important, because if I can start to cultivate acceptance of death now, it's going to better equip me for the inevitable death of someone that I care about. And again, this is where I think society and culture plays a really big role because we don't have a lot of cultural tools. Many of us are in our toolbox for grief where we're sort of expected if someone dies to Go to the funeral, be sad for a few weeks, but then sort of get back to work and get back to our normal lives. Whereas in many parts of the world, that is not what happens. You receive a lot of support from the community. You will be, it's completely normal to speak to your dead, to hear your dead. Whereas if that were to happen in Sydney, you would be almost hospitalized if you were having experiences like that people will build household shrines to the dead this is a common practice in places like Japan for instance where 50% of homes in Tokyo will have a butsudan a shrine to their dead ancestors and again if in many cultures if that if you were doing that it would be seen as very odd so we don't have often a lot of ways of really coping effectively with grief unfortunately
0: and certainly our workplace system doesn't support a normalized grief. At all. Yes, exactly. That's that's a
1: great point.
0: Yes. All right, so then what I'm gleaning from what you're saying is that having a preparedness for death can be beneficial in terms of reducing our level of of death anxiety. So then what can we do whether that's as an individual or as communities to try and support each other and to help each other to cultivate a better death preparedness.
1: I think there are various different starting points. I think on an individual level, the more we can practice that idea of memento mori, of of remembering that we will die, the better. So whether that's through, there are various apps that help you do this. So there's an app called We Croak, for example, where several times a day, it'll come up with a reminder on your phone reminding you that you will die. Um, which is called we croak. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's always a bit of a laugh when you're out at a dinner or something and your phone lights up with, (laughs) remember you will die. But it's, it's, you know, again, it just a good way of bringing home the fact that we only have so long on this earth and why not make the most of it? Things like writing your own will or even writing your own tombstone inscription or eulogy, anything that's really bringing home the idea of the inevitability of death on a personal level will really help with preparing for it. In terms of a a social or community level, the death positive movement has been really, really (laughs) positive in this area where there are various events or or community organizations, things like death cafes, where people will meet in a cafe, just a group of strangers meeting to discuss death in a really agenda-free, non-judgmental space, or the death over dinner movement, where the idea is you you host a dinner party, you bring friends or family, and you sit and talk about death. Those sorts of things might seem a bit out there, but it's a really good way of starting to break down the taboos around death and show people that it's okay to talk about it. And that not only is it just okay, that those sorts of conversations, starting those conversations, can also make all the difference when it comes to the kind of death someone has, right? Where if I have made an end of life plan, if I've spoken to my friends and family about what I would want to happen to me at the end of life, what kind of death I would like, that's really going to have a real-world influence on my experience of my own death when that time comes. So all of those sorts of ideas I think are a really good step in the right direction of trying to normalise death. I think a sense of death education, isn't Mm. it, we just learn
0: about the various things that happen with and around dying and death because it's happening to us all. So... We may as mm. well understand it as, as much as we can. How has your work influenced or changed your own perspective and experience of death, do you think?
1: I think it's had a really big impact on my perspective of death. I think, you know, we were talking earlier about how exposure therapy, surrounding yourself with reminders of death, is the most effective way to overcome it. And I think my own work is really living proof of that because every day I am talking about death, or writing about death, reading about death. And I've certainly found that I've come to a much more accepting perspective on death now than before I started all of this work. It's almost impossible not to because when you're reading all of these perspectives on dying, when you're reading philosophers' views on dying, views from people who work in palliative care, when you're just surrounding yourself with all of these very different perspectives on death it's inevitable, I think, that you'll find something in there which changes your perspective on it.
0: And do you recall your first experience of death?
1: It's hard to recall. I mean, I imagine it would have been having pets die when I was a kid. I remember always just being really interested in it, so I remember being really obsessed with the Egyptian mummies and pyramids and all of those symbols around death. But I don't recall any specific moment where I realized that suddenly this was going to happen. There were just sort of various different memories that come up about, you know, being really interested in skulls and, and images of death and that sort of thing, but no particular moment I can pinpoint.
0: And even that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, probably I suspect, and I might be incorrect in my observations, but I think for a lot of families, if their kids showed unusual interest in some of these things, they'd be discouraged, but obviously you mm. were encouraged to, to explore and investigate these sorts of things.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I've actually never thought about it like that, but that's exactly true. I remember uh, one memory that comes up is we had a basement under our house that my family used as a cellar, and they would just keep things down there. And this is a bit a bit out there, but I remember my dad while he was under there found a, a rat skull, mm-hmm. and he brought it up for me knowing that I would be really interested in this and I just kept it in a box for probably years. And that's exactly right. It's the sort of thing probably most parents wouldn't do for their children, but that's exactly what I was interested in. And, you know, him being a clinical psychologist as well, and we've written several books together, it was always an interest that was really encouraged and was never treated as weird or (laughs) I was never sent to a psychologist because of my interest in any of those things. And I think that's probably also really helped me feel quite comfortable with death. The fact that, you know, my family didn't shy away from talking about it.
0: It's just saying this is what happens. This is the cycle of life and death. You can't have one without the other. All right. Well, look, thank you so much. I really do appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with me, Rachel. That was really interesting. Again, your most recent book is called Free Yourself from Death Anxiety, a CBT self-help guide for a fear of death and dying. All the best with your continuing work. I think it's marvellous and the more information and the more uh, perspectives that we can get around death, the better.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Rachel, very much. Next time on What About Death, I'll be speaking with UK writer, journalist and broadcaster Hayley Campbell, who last year published a fascinating book called All the Living and the Dead. This book explores the death trades, those people who work every day with death, those people we rarely think about until we need them. Haley tells us about the thread of kindness and heart she found as she spent time talking with them and sharing the experience of their amazing work. I hope you will join me next time for What About Death? Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to
1: with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe and tell your friends and family about us too.